and welcome to the Let's Talk podcasts. This is your host, Susie Lewis, speaking from Toulouse. And this episode of Let's Talk, we will be discussing leading, measuring, and scaling innovation in organizations. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Elvin Turner, who specializes in helping leaders and organizations in innovation and entrepreneurship, and advising global businesses, governmental institutions, nonprofits, and startups around the world on the subject of creating pragmatic and scalable innovation for better businesses. Elvin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susie. Really, really great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you. Elvin, I won't quantify how long ago we met, um, (laughs) where we were already exchanging on some of these topics and finding ourselves meeting again recently on the topics of culture, innovation, and moving the needle on change. You have dedicated your career to helping organizations, institutions, and leaders get serious about innovation and how to scale it for sustainable impact. Your TED Talk tells us about crazy ideas and uh, the idea of individual and collective vulnerability to build the relevant space for innovation to thrive. And your recent book, Be Less Zombie, How Great Companies Create Dynamic Innovation, Fearless Leadership and Passionate People, also picks up this theme. So congratulations, first of all, on your book, Be Less Zombie. Thanks. Yes, it was, wasn't was something I ever intended to do. And it kind of just happened. But uh, I, I so enjoyed the process. I'm already starting to think about what do I write next. So thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm glad you did write it. My first question has to be, why zombies? Tell us a little bit about the title. Well, it, it came about through a, a program that I was doing at Henley Business School in the UK. And mm-hmm. I was sort of on their roster for, for a few years talking about innovation. Mm-hmm. And because it was innovation, they would want something a little edgier. And we'd, we'd done several different formats. And at the time, there was this uh, the concept, which is still around, of unicorns. A unicorn yeah. being a company that's worth a startup scale up that's already worth a billion dollars in mm-hmm. theory. And what is it that they're doing that is different, that is causing them to succeed where incumbents are failing or struggling to maintain their relevance? So we came up with this idea about what can we learn from the unicorns, but I wanted to put some other, you know, something at the other end of the spectrum. So I thought, well, you know, a zombie. It's How a, about a zombies? Creature. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a zombie is something that is the living dead. It's It's, you know, scavenging for its next meal. And kind of tongue-in-cheek we put this program together with 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 that in place and it really stuck people really resonated with the theme and mm. throughout the the course I'd come up with these be less zombie principles and when I was making the slides <laughs> I was thinking be less zombie be less that, that feels like it could be a book title and then <laughs> sure enough it became a book title Excellent. so that, that's the story of where it came from Excellent. Thanks. So, and I'm sure there are quite a lot of zombies out there and people shouldn't take that in the wrong way. So what inspired you to write this book, which is a brilliant book about innovation and it makes it pragmatic and simple and it's almost a playbook. So what inspired you to write that? A couple of things, really. The The first conversation I often have with a leader inside an organisation when they're wanting to move the needle on innovation is, mm. you know, don't tell me why we need to innovate. Don't tell me what we need to innovate. Just tell us how. It's the how that always <laughs> slips through our fingers. And we, mm. we think we can just nail this thing. And it's it's just too slippery. So that's the first thing. And most of my work ends up being framed around the how, what's the practical journey. And I guess the second reason I wrote it which was the the real clincher for me was I found myself coming to the end of assignments with organizations and 
got them into a, a relatively good place to be able to keep moving with innovation. Mm. And yet I knew that further down the line, there would be bumps in the road and I wanted to be able to leave something behind. And even though there are hundreds of literally hundreds of really good innovation books out there, yeah. I never felt that it was something that was really pragmatic enough, written in non-jargon speak, mm. um, and just being warts and all and really honest about what it really what it's really going to be like. And here are some practical workarounds and and tools and, and techniques that you can think about mm. that can help you along the way. Mm. So it it was really born out of that desire to want leaders and organizations to continue to do well after I'd left the building not that it's all about me by any means but I I just had seen so many programs when you walk away just start to evaporate because unforeseen showed up or you know other dynamics came into the equation so it it was the I guess and I guess I know you know a book doesn't solve everything but what I'm trying to do now is turn the book now into practical tools that people can download and, and apply as well so that it's there's different formats for people to access the tools yeah I mean but you're very generous in your book you, you give a lot of your tools and canvases around you know strategic drivers and also uh, the innovation framework uh, which for me are one of the two most important building blocks that that you give and you take a creative commons approach where you you put it out there so that people can use it can you walk us through your innovation framework? Because for me, that was a real starting point to the playbook. Of, I love the idea of turning innovation on and then turning it up. So can you tell us a bit about the framework? Yeah. So at the, at the heart of the framework really is, I guess it's in some ways, it's the most important part, which is what are the strategic drivers behind mm. innovation? And s- sometimes we get that there can be confusion inside an organization around the difference between strategy and an innovation strategy. Yeah. And this this is really where we try and iron that out because a lot of innovation fails because it's not tightly aligned to strategy. And mm. therefore, when we start to ask questions about how well is it performing and what is it delivering, it, if it isn't tightly integrated back to strategy, it can very easily find itself on shaky ground and yeah. innovation initiatives can, can find themselves being taken apart and or, or downsized. Mm-hmm. So the heart of it really is trying to frame what does this organization need? You know, if we were hiring innovation as a job, what would it deliver? What would its outcomes be in in the short term and in the long term? And that's mm-hmm. that's aligning it very closely with business. And then round the edge, I guess, of the framework, we've got five components which are what would need to be true then in order for us to de- to be able to deliver that innovation strategy and it's looking at the process so many organizations mm-hmm. firstly don't have a clear innovation process that everybody understands everybody knows where if i have an idea i know where to take it and i know mm-hmm. what will happen next it's mm-hmm. it's often one of the the biggest reasons why people don't volunteer ideas is they simply don't know where to take it particularly if it falls outside of the remit of their team so the first yeah. thing is get a process in place and it doesn't have to be a complicated one and in the book i walk through you know a simple process that is good enough to get you started and then you can make it more sophisticated if you want to but it's all about ideas into action how do we do the process mm. well so that's the first part the second is capabilities well what capabilities are we going to need to be able to deliver this innovation and that can be all kinds of different things but i would say the starting point is train people how to get through the process so how to find good insights how to frame a really compelling question i call them catalytic questions Mm. 
forces you to think differently. You know, sometimes people, you know, the old cliche, we need to think outside the box. Yeah. Sometimes you can't even see the box. And a, and, a, yeah. and a question can break your mind out of, you know, very often I think you, you can sit in a brainstorm when you think the thing we do today blinds us from what we need to be able to see for tomorrow. Yeah. So questions are a great way to pop that balloon and help you yeah. to, to see past it. So, and then coming up with ideas and then crucially, I think we'll probably talk about this later. How mm. do you run tiny experiments around yes. those ideas to test yeah. Should we even be doing this before we spend too much money? And I think we get lost, don't we? We get lost in the enormity of, of what we're trying to do in large organisations. So it's sort of we get lost in the buzzwords. Oh, we've done that. So now we have to ideate and now we have to do this and we have to do that. And you're right. Lots of ideas never come out because people just either don't know where to put them or they don't think that that they're going to be heard. And I think the question around leaders and organisations being deliberate in linking innovation to strategic objectives and, and deliberately creating that space is really important. How many leaders do you see being that intentional around creating an innovation process essentially and space? Not that many, if I'm honest. And, mm. I, and I think there's a good distinction to make here. I see a lot of organizations who I would say are dating innovation. And <laughs> I like that. <laughs> they're not really, they're not all in. They, they know we need to do it and they might run some mm. campaigns. They might mm. promote someone to be head of innovation. And 18 months later, they've left with their tail between their legs because yeah. they won't set up for success. And it's, it's not a, a, an all in dedicated mentality. Whereas if you look at the companies that are continually out innovating their peers, mm. they have committed to innovation. They've settled down and they've, you know, one of the things that I'll often say at the beginning of a, a training workshop is what do you what what do you think the single most important thing is that defines whether an organization will be a high performing innovator or not? Mm. And the answer is really dull and boring, but it's <laughs> they choose. They yeah. decide, well, we have no option. Tomorrow will be different. And my mm. my innovation um, definition is the pursuit of the continuous pursuit of profitable relevance. Yes. And if we are going to be relevant in one year, three years, five years, well, uh, of course, we're going to have to do different things. So mm. let's be intentional about it showing up now. Otherwise, you know, we're robbing our future by allowing the status quo to take over. So I would say the majority of of companies that I end up working for, and to be fair, they're calling me because they realise they have an issue and that they've got yeah. a problem. They're they're stuck in dating mode, and the transition mm. is: you have to begin with choosing. We're going to create an environment where innovation can't help but show up. It's an inevitability that it will show up because that's good stewardship. Actually, yeah. if we are here to lead this organisation to both thrive now and in the future, it's incumbent upon us to be deliberate about pursuing the thing that. Every other part of the organization really wants to kill mm. this. The, the metrics and the, the levers of control inside most organizations are geared towards and calibrated to delivering today really well. Well, mm. guess what? Yeah. Quirky, strange, ambiguous ideas don't last long in that environment. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of stewardship and you talk about fearless leadership, of course, and the, the capabilities. I mean, I feel like time is of the essence. And, and you touch on this point in the book when you talk about talents and skills in the innovation space and the half-life of executive skills and capabilities to actually create these processes. But this phenomenon for me is intrinsically linked to the wider skills landscape where the half-life of a skill in general terms has moved from like 30 years to three. And mm. As new technological skills come into the innovation space, we will see that uh, getting 
sort of smaller and smaller. So the model of I'll learn at school and apply at work doesn't work anymore. So what do you see organizations doing to accommodate this shift, particularly at executive level? I'm seeing, well, let, let, let me differentiate and this is just based on the organizations that I've been working with mm-hmm. organizations that I would say, uh, let's call it born digital mm-hmm. companies that have were only really uh, imagined and conceived in the last 10 years or so where their way of working is already quite different. Yeah. The people that are on the board often are ones that are very comfortable with designing business models and yeah handling more ambiguous conversations than dealing in certainty which yeah. in many organizations you know the, the classic route through going an MBA and planning led work yeah. which I'm not knocking planning but mm. planning today often fails to yeah. deliver what we really need and this idea of moving towards more emergence agile um, strategy development is proving to be much more helpful in in many environments the comment I hear quite a bit in these sort of born digital companies is when they have a space opening up on the board, the temptation has often been, well, we'll go to P and G or Unilever where these people have been born and bred and they're leaders and they know how to lead big business mm-hmm. and scale thinking, well, actually probably that skill set is not necessarily the one we need in the future. Mm-hmm. Or it could even become a constraint on, on us being able to think and deliver in the way that we need to. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a, a uh, certainly a tendency that I'm seeing to, to look further down the chain and seeing, okay, where are the, the hotshots of tomorrow? Mm. How can we accelerate their development and get them promoted more quickly? Mm. Which is a, you know, a challenge in its own right about how do you create judgment clearly, clearly. in people with young heads on, on yeah. shoulders. <laughs> um, but that the idea that actually breeding our own based on the culture that we have here, the journey we need to go on, the skills that we know are going to need to be important rather than relying on, I hate to say old school skills because many of them are still important. But, you know, as you said, the half life mm. of them is is shrinking. So it's a difficult one, but mm. I can't help but think there's something in those organizations that are more focused on who do we need to become and therefore who needs to be in the positions of decision making, what is going to cause them to thrive, and how can we take responsibility for fast tracking their development rather than relying on skills that may actually become a constraint from different organizations. Yeah. And it comes back to, to the question of balance. If, you know, for me, the question of balance is pivotal in, in your book, as you constantly shift between the status quo and the more exciting, but more scary, let's say, exploratory space of innovation. And I think that's why I like the sort of unicorn zombie scale, because it yeah. is about finding where you are in between those two and, and mm. defining what that model looks for you like for you. But one of the hardest gaps to bridge for me is the transition from proof of concept to industrialization of ideas. And for me, the capabilities need to be anticipated so that you can do that. I mean, I've seen lots of projects lose their expected benefits because the wider organization isn't ready for it in inverted commas. So I think we are essentially changing the way we create value in business. In your book, you give us the example of the CEO of a large drinks company that tells his team to bring him experiments and insights, not ideas. Yeah. So it's anecdotal, but for me, it's key to the scaling of the mindset needed for innovation. And, you know, how does that piece play into the capabilities and talent uh, discussion for you? Well, I think there's two things 
going on really well i I can spoil it back to one i think the biggest shift that organizations need to make and it starts with leaders is learning to let go Mm -hmm. and move more into exploration mode because Mm -hmm. i mean look at the world right now you know Mm -hmm. this is being recorded the beginning of october 2020 yeah and you know new lockdowns are being announced all around the world and and companies (laughs) are wondering what happens next and that's the biggest question what happens next what you know what do we do next Mm. and it has become more difficult than ever to try mm. and predict the future in even shorter timeframes than was previously possible. So the expectation that we continue to do what we've always done will get us there tomorrow, we all know is naive, but what are we doing about it? Mm. The shift towards more exp- exploration in more of our work has to become something that I think is, is non-negotiable. And that means we need to create an environment that feels safe to learn, to test, to explore. And that mm. has to start with leaders. So the question that I'm suggesting that leaders ask themselves more and more is, to what extent am I a safe place to learn around, to fail around? Because there will be a lot of failure. If we can't predict the future, we're going to get things yeah. wrong. Let's just be real about that. Yeah. But if I think about the environment that I create, the user experience that I create for those mm. around me, what can I do to give people confidence that if they make a mistake, not through sloppy work, but yeah. by courageous endeavor. We thought this was the right thing to try. It turned out that we were wrong. People don't get penalized, but you know, as Google does, they reward mm. people for doing that with mm. excellence and with diligence. So the key thing I think for leaders is to look, and it, it, there is a capability issue in here, but I think actually more of it is cultural, which is yes. how can we lower the stakes to mm. taking the first step towards something that we don't know the answer to. That's exploration. If we're not prepared to go on that journey, which does require building an environment with these high levels of trust, mm. we can't really expect to be able to sense and respond in the way that the world needs us to now. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you talk about calibrating culture to outcomes. Mm. Uh, and I love the idea of taking the first step when you don't have the outcome. You don't necessarily know, know what's going to happen. You, you touch on it in your book about the spaces. So the spaces you're creating and you take an analogy between a rehearsal space and a performance space. And what was anecdotal a few minutes ago is now for me p- becoming pivotal to how leaders fearlessly need to show up in that space. I mean, how important is culture in the scaling of innovation? If you look at the research, it's, you know, hands down culture is by far the most important dimension of innovation performance. You can have a great process, you can have the best capabilities. They will all hit a fairly low ceiling unless your culture is calibrated to the outcome that you're pursuing. And that means people are comfortable and equipped to do the things that we need them to do. And if we're talking about more exploratory work, that means I need to feel safe and I need to be given freedom to do creative work in ways that human beings were designed to do, which means not under conditions of extreme stress and time pressure, but let's be real about what the biology and chemistry of our brain says, where Mm. we need to be in a place of fun, which we still seem as trivial, you know, seem to think is trivial and, but okay, you want to ignore the evidence? That's fine. Uh, You know, and if you're having fun, you're not working properly. Exactly. There's all these cliches that we need to get over if we get serious really unlocking you know create creativity so mm. culture is it's funny when you go to conferences um, you often hear 
people standing up and talking about the the great stuff they've done with innovation and of course they have mm. but often i hear people saying they talk through a great process the, you know the, the case study and they say, and of course you've got to deal with the culture yeah. anyway so moving on tell us about how you do the culture and it's it's one of the least talked about areas i think because it, it it's pretty hard mm. But really, it is working back from here is the outcome that we need to deliver. Therefore, here are the behaviors. Therefore, here are the motivations, the beliefs, uh, the levels of confidence that people are going to need to have to perform those behaviors. What will that take? And therefore, Mm. what new things may we need to measure? Mm. And that is hard work. And it's hard to hold in place because people like to go back to the path of least resistance. It often isn't what exploratory work is all about. So it's hard work but it's unavoidable work. And, you know, given that discussion, I can't not touch on the question of assumptions within a culture and, you know, Edgar Schein's famous culture model that highlights the importance of the basic unwritten assumptions of of an organisational culture. You also focus on this. But, I mean, it's typically this that will move the needle for changing the culture and getting people to actually have different conversations around what the environment should be like and how we show up there. So just to bring it back to the sort of pragmatic uh, playbook element, how would you advise leaders to obviously and intentionally step out of their comfort zone to try and influence those spaces? I I think Max Dupree uh, wrote a book, and I can't remember what it was called, something about leadership, but it's a brilliant book. Mm. And in the book, he says, the number one responsibility of a leader is to define reality. And I love that Mm. because it's so obvious and true, but we spend much of our time not pursuing reality. And Alex Ostervalder and Steve Blank talk a lot about innovation theatre. We like the activity. We like the shark tank. We like, you know, the the fun (laughs) around it. But are we really serious about what it takes to pursue the future in a meaningful way? And that starts with defining reality, which is, Let's look at the underlying assumptions which today's success is based upon and understand to what extent are these things moving because to the extent that they move affects the level of relevance of both Mm. our business model and our operating model. And if we're not being serious about tracking those things, we can fall into the trap of running our business and our culture and all the other dimensions on you know, models that were designed for a different era. So mm. I, I think the starting point is, are you prepared to deal in reality? And if you're not, have a look at why and get in a room with a coach and yeah. go on a journey to understand yeah. what's holding me back here. Because the reality is, whilst you your own comfort zone might be something that you know you want to guard and protect, mm. actually you're becoming a constraint on the performance of the future of the organization. And yeah. that's not great stewardship. And that's just yeah. not a great thing to be doing, which mm. is easy, you know, to say here on a in, in, in a studio, but the reality is that leaders are in that position to steward today and tomorrow. And if I'm not prepared to deal in reality of both myself or my team or the organization, having the things in place that might be difficult, that might be ambiguous to work through, mm. then yeah, I think leaders should really ask the question, am I the right? Am I in the right place at the right time? So mm. it is hard and it's prickly and it's a bit sticky to deal with, but I think it's one of the biggest issues that we need to deal with as, a, as, as companies. What are the assumptions that the elephants in the room that we all mm. know are true, yeah. but we're deliberately avoiding 
well, yeah. you'll pay the price at some point in the future. I, I agree. And I think I like the journey analogy. It's small steps, isn't it? You know, it's, it's sort of the, the small is beautiful. And it reminds me of uh, the analogy you use in your book of uh, going from pond to tank to ocean. Mm. And I think in keeping with innovation methodology it is around starting small, trying it, iterating on that, starting small, trying it, iterating on that. And time is running out, but I would love to uh, ask your last advice to individuals and organizations looking to scale innovation, particularly in the current climate post, well, it's not really post COVID, is it? But in the pandemic, what mm. would your advice be to uh, organizations looking to save innovation, if you like, because it's the first budget to be cut, isn't it? Um, when, when you get into crisis mode. So how would you advise they manage that? It's really hard. I mean, trying to fight the battle of staying alive and having an eye on the future. Mm. I, I don't envy anybody who's got to make those judgment calls. But I, I guess my my advice would be: be courageous and don't cut back everything because you'll you'll only dig a hole for for tomorrow if you do. And if we if all of the great work that you're doing to, for today to stay in business works you could just find yourself with another crisis a bit further down the line. So mm. as far as you can, hold back something that you can continue to invest in tomorrow. So look at what are the bets that we have most confidence in based on what we know that value that customers value the most. So one of the ways that I like to frame this is to talk about the idea of customer progress. What mm-hmm. important underserved progress do they have in the context in which you serve them focus on those things most because that's the stuff that they're most likely to buy in the future. So it's about, I think, striking that really difficult balance of holding yourself to account to say, what bets have we got in the pipeline that will hopefully bear fruit, gain traction in the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months? If we've got nothing, then we have a problem. And as far as you can, hold yourself to account to say, we need to have something in the pipeline don't you know focus on the things that you have greatest certainty about and if that means that you you pair back 90% in the short term at least you've got something there and i see a lot of companies that have got nothing in the cupboard don't fall into that trap okay so fill the innovation pipeline and make sure there's something in it even when the budgets are not as big as they used to be is that correct yeah i think so yeah and and actually you're right the innovation is the first to go actually the second thing to go is um, learning and development. L&D. I knew you were going to yeah. say that. <laughs> and you're and, right, of course. And the two come together. If we're trying to teach yeah. people to be better at innovation, then we, you know, it's a double whammy effect potentially. So mm. yeah, it's, it's tough. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Do you have one last word of wisdom for our listeners? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's such a big topic, but I yeah. think the, the question that I, I always advise leaders, so anyone who's working in innovation to consider is, who do I need to become? Who do we need to become? Because the world is always changing and it won't be the same in 10 minutes as in 10 hours, 10 days, 10 months, we can forget that and we can inadvertently put concrete in our organizations that can stop us moving. If we ask the question, who do I need to become? It suggests that we continually need to change. And Mm. I think it's just a very healthy question to ask, who are we becoming? Who do we need to become? Are they the same thing? And see where that conversation takes you because usually there are some some needles that have got stuck somewhere mm. or in danger of being stuck and it just gives you the freedom to look at them in a really healthy non-judgmental way and say okay we need a little tweak over there just to keep us moving so they, that would be a, a question to ask i guess for, for anybody listening excellent elvin thank you so much for coming and sharing your thoughts with us no you're uh, welcome 
If you want to know more about Elvin and his work, head over to www.elvinturner.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if so, please head over to iTunes and give us your opinion and review. So it's bye from me for now, and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk.